Welcome to the Innovate for Impact podcast. This podcast is for leaders in the social sector like you who want to make a difference. Each episode is packed with practical ideas on how you can be more innovative and create an even bigger social impact. We share our ideas on what you can do and also speak to leaders from the sector to share best practice. So let's get into it and let's talk impact. Hey, welcome to another episode of the Innovate for Impact podcast. You've got Dan Bentley here and Tracy Newman from Impacto Consulting. And we're joined here by our good friend, uh, Fran Timmons from St. Vincent's Health, Melbourne. Welcome, Fran. Hi, thanks very much for having me. No worries. So good to have you on the show. Fran, you just want to tell everybody a little bit about uh, who you are and what you do? Mm. So my title is Director of Nursing for Mental Health and I work at St. Vincent's Health, Melbourne. And what that means is that I have a professional responsibility for the nursing team at the hospital and to help guide the way the program moves forward along with the rest of the team. Yeah, awesome. And we've known Fran for geez, probably a couple of years now. Um, we've known each other through the co-design sort of space in, in Melbourne and attending so different sort of training and events together, which has been really cool. But the reason we got Fran on the show today was because we are love to hear about the story of how she used co-design internally within St. Vincent's Melbourne to be able to create these safe haven cafes, which have been a real success. So Fran, you just want to give us a bit of a high level understanding of what a safe haven cafe is for those listeners that may not have this concept before. Hmm. So the idea of a safe haven cafe is to provide a space, an alternative to the areas that people feel that they don't get the support if they're having difficulties, shall we say, in crisis or feeling like they're not coping or disconnected from the rest of the community, rather than having to use an emergency department ED on a Saturday afternoon because there's no other services available and there's no clinical services available, then people can use this space as an alternative. And it's driven by the customers. We call them customers in our Safe Haven Cafe because we run it like a cafe. And it's driven by what the customers want and it's peer-led, which means that it's led by lived experience of mental health and drug and alcohol people with some clinical support built in. Yeah, fantastic. Just to sort of help my understanding, so people are there, instead of going to the emergency department, they can they can come into this cafe and then somebody will come out and spend some time with them. Is that kind of how that works, over a coffee or something like that? Or Yeah, so we welcome everyone in this particular space and it's one of the things that we learnt from the UK model. So this whole design was borrowed from the UK to begin with. Theirs is a much more clinical model and ours is what we call a peer-led model which is why we needed the co-design. But the idea is that people can come into the cafe like they would, like you and I would go for a coffee on a Saturday or a Sunday morning. We want to make it as comfortable as it is for you and I to go. For a lot of people, going into a cafe is not comfortable. One, because it requires them to spend money and often people don't have the money to spend on a coffee. Two, they're walking into a place where they don't know people and there might be lots of people and it could be very triggering in very many ways. So the idea of our cafe is that you come into the space, you're welcomed and you feel that you are important and that it's okay for you to be there. And then the staff actually 
act as the waiters, I guess you'd call them, because they come and offer you a coffee and a snack and then they'll ask you if you would like to speak to anyone. You don't have to. You can come and read your own paper. We provide books and newspapers. In pre-COVID times we did. At the moment we're not providing those. And we also let people decide in their own time what they need from us. And for those people who are struggling with nowhere safe to live at the at a particular time, we also allow them to charge their phones. You know, we'll have soups that we can make for them so that we can actually give them a space where they might actually need to have a little nap as well. So the whole concept is around it's a space that the customers tell us what they want and we try and provide those needs within the confines of a hospital setting. And it's worked so well that in New South Wales, Western Australia and Queensland, safe spaces, for want of a better word, they don't call these cafes, but safe spaces have been built into the health budgets and are operating as we speak. Wow, fantastic. Sounds like a really important initiative and one that is definitely suited to use something like co-design in its design because it sounds like you do really need need it to be quite flexible and, and really understand the needs of the people that would be visiting those spaces to such an extent that you've got options for them and you can sort of almost co-design an experience on the fly by the sounds of it is what you're able to kind of do. And to be honest with you, to begin with, that part of it came a little accidentally. I was lucky enough to be able to visit five of the safe haven cafes in the UK and I got to speak to some of the people because I went there while it was open. And one of the things that I noticed was that the clinical staff were peeled off from everything else and they were doing clinical work and the customers were very clear in those spaces that they wanted to be able to have more say about how the cafes were operating. And there were some things that they weren't able to have, such as they weren't allowed to have hot food because of, you know, OH&S and infection control standards, those sorts of things. But there were other things that they wanted to be able to do in the space that they didn't feel they were being heard about. And that sent me back with a big query in my mind. And I was really lucky enough when we found the funds, because we had to go looking for these funds to create this space. And Better Care Victoria were running an initiative at the time where they would um, invest in innovations. And they saw this as innovative. And I was lucky to have a a project officer who was a co-designer. So when I started to talk about that slight rub, because it is a bit of a rub with clinical about in health services, you come to us because we're the experts and we give you that expert information. Whereas what this was saying was we want to be the experts in this. And as a result of those conversations with that project officer who was really familiar with co-design, we made the decision that we needed to involve the people who would use the cafe to give us the information about what they wanted the space to look like. And that was the beginning of our co-design adventure. That was really fortunate. It makes such a big difference actually being able to find language for something that you kind of or find the process that fits what you knew and could see from uh, hearing feedback. But actually it must have been quite exciting to then get to speak to a project officer who said, oh, there's, there's a methodology that will provide you with what you're looking for here. Absolutely. And I think the magic word there is the language 
because when um, this person started to use the language of co-design, um, it just made, it clicked into place. Everything clicked into, into place. And because that, that person was a part of a larger organisation, we were able to um, piggyback on some of the things that they were able to offer us. And they have a whole team of designers. So they were able to give us their input and to help us to move forward so that we could actually, from the very beginning, build the co-design into the business case. And so for me, it was the first time that I had ever joined health business with co-design. And it fitted really, really well, but it fitted well because I had the right people around me. Mm. Nice. The reason we've got Fran on the show is um, because she's going to give us some of her experiences and some of her tips on how she was able to navigate a large organization like the one that she works in to be able to get a project like this off the ground. But just before we do get into those um, lessons that you learned, Fran, do you want to maybe just give us an understanding of what was the high level understanding of what that process was that you took? So what we needed to do was engage the organization in that innovative practice because it was really different for health. We were saying to the organization we would like to run something that doesn't have a clinical input, it doesn't collect statistics, so it's not going to feed into the bottom line, but we have a belief that we can value add to the service, to what we offer to the people that come to our service, and we will try and measure that. So we built into the, from the very beginning, we had a very tight business plan so that we could reassure the organisation and our executive sponsors that we were going to be able to produce something. And then we set about setting up our steering committee to oversee the decisions. So that, And we did a co-design process with them as well around problem solving for particular areas because there are particular problems that always come up in health but particularly in mental health. And one of those is risk. Risk comes up every time. And so what we wanted to do was we wanted our committee to have an idea of what a co-design process would be like and how that helps you to buy in to a different kind of culture because that's what we were hoping to do was change the culture of how we engage with people who need assistance of any description. So once we'd done that, we then set out to find some people that would be potential users of this kind of service and we did some workshops with them We did some individual sessions, we did some interviews and we did some some observations as well of the space because that was one of the things that had come out of the design. So we tried to take the feedback, we did the thematic analysis, we looked at, you know, what that might mean for how the cafe operates and then we had to put it together with how a health service operates. And we had to work those things through so that they could both sit side by side. So, for instance, in a health service, you need to know who's there so that if you have a code red, which is a fire or some kind of emergency like that, you have to be able to know that you've got everyone out. But our customers wanted to come to the cafe without having to jump through any hoops. And that included hoops of they didn't want to have to do an assessment, they didn't want to have to do a triage, They wanted to come as if they were coming to a cafe. So then we worked back with that group and found a way that we could have both. And what we agreed to was a sign-in sheet 
so that and people didn't have to use their real name and we would use that to collect as much information as we could to help our analysis moving forward and our evaluations, our economic evaluations, not our customer experience evaluations. So those are just little examples of the things that we had to do to make those two things sit together. Then we found a space, and for us we were really lucky in the St Vincent space because we had an art gallery tucked away And it's a beautiful space, high ceilings, huge windows, fabulous lighting. And so what we did was work with customers about, so what would we need to do to make this space warm? And then so what we do is every Friday afternoon we bump it up, so we dress it up like a cafe and then we bump it down on a a Sunday night and pop everything away so that it's back to being an art gallery and a space that people can come and sit. And so once we moved through with all of those sorts of uh, practical things by that stage, uh, we were able to start to welcome people. And one of the biggest challenges that we had was how do we get the information out there? Health services are not great communicators, it turns out, in the sense that we don't use social media. We do have an, an internal Facebook page, but it's hard to get to it if you're out there in the big public. So we had to find, try and find innovative ways to actually get the word out there. And it's still one of the challenges that we have. And most of our referrals come from word of mouth and from referrals from the emergency department who may have had someone come in who only needed to, who needed to talk to somebody but didn't need emergency care. So they will refer them over to us and we chose some careful sites to advertise the cafe on. So, for instance, one of them is called Ask Izzy. So that's a national website where you can go and look up all sorts of things, where to get emergency housing, where to get free food, where to get all sorts of support. So we're a part of that as well. And then by putting ourselves out there and saying to various people that were doing things like podcasts, come and have a look at us, we'll do an open day, You can tell people about what we look like. So those sorts of things we had to start doing. And those are things that you don't normally do in health. You don't normally have to sell what you've got. So that was a challenge for us as well. And it was a very slow beginning and it's built up to a point where we're able to welcome, you know, sometimes up to 30 people in a weekend, over a weekend, and we don't work five days a week. At the, we chose times where we thought people might need us the most and mostly that's over the weekend, Friday into the evening and Saturday and Sundays. And then we built into our business case a valuation and so we try to look at how do we value add but also what does the customer get out of this and what are the lessons that we need to learn from it. Look, I think one of the things that we often hear when we're talking to people out there is that Getting something like this stood up in an organization is hard, especially when you're working in a space where people see themselves as experts and health we know is a space that that can happen. It's really hard for people to work in a different way than what they've been used to working historically, Um, especially when you're trying something new. It can be hard to get those people on board and to get something like this stood up. So I think it'd be really great to hear from you. Like, What are some of the lessons that you learned through doing this? What are some of the stories that were associated with that that you had to sort of challenge that you had to overcome to be able to sort of stand this thing up? I think I've mentioned already the, you know, needing to make sure that we 
had the engagement of the organisation because we were going to do something that was very different. And St Vincent's, you know, quite luckily, I think, has some very strong values around supporting people who often don't get the best experience from health services. So we were able to use those values of St Vincent's to work with the executive team and with the program team to convince them that this was something that was worth trying and that it would add value to what we were offering to the people that were coming to the service, which is why I think it's so important to collect the experience of the people who come. And it's another value of that co-design because if you keep that process going through from the very beginning into that evaluation, you actually get the non-biased feedback that helps you to understand not only what is really working but what people think is not working. Where are the gaps? What do people think could improve what we do? And again, coming back, that challenge of the rubs is the important part. So some of the things that that we'd thought about with trying to create that warm environment was things like monitoring. In health services, people are always wanting to monitor, you know, to make sure that people are safe in their spaces and we're held accountable if they're not. And so one of the biggest, longest conversations we had was around how we were going to have that interaction with our security services without it being seen as an interference in how we do what we do. So we shifted from using the sort of security that the rest of the hospital uses to notify that something's not right to something much more unobtrusive. So they have these little buttons, almost like the ones you see that elderly people will have so that if they have a fall. So these are similar, they're very small, they could hang on to them or have them on the table near them and they didn't you know, they weren't a great big telephone with a big button on the top of it. And then we did have to have the cameras, but because the security company chose cameras that were, you know, the same colour as the walls so that they weren't, and because it's so tall, the ceilings are so high, we were able to put the cameras higher up so that I would think that probably a lot of our customers don't even know that they're there most of the time and it's easy to forget and they're not on all of the time they're only on if we request them to be on and I will say we've never had to request that. Are you looking for innovative ways for your organisation to deliver more impact? Take our online assessment and receive a customised report in your inbox that highlights exactly what to do next. It takes only five minutes to fill out and it's completely free. Visit Impacto Consulting what we agreed with security was that we wanted them to feel comfortable about coming into the space as we did any other staff member that might be in a uniform so that people could get used to having an interaction with health staff that wasn't a formal expert clinical interaction. So we invited the emergency department staff to come across and get a coffee or anyone else that was around to come and get a coffee. We encouraged people who were providing case management to people with that were receiving case management from the mental health team to, to, bring, to come with people. We invited some of our other clinicians to actually meet their clients in the space and have their 
conversations with them there so that they could introduce them firstly but also so that other people could see that it was that there was a different a way of having a relationship with health staff that was very different those were really important things to do as we were moving forward and some of these things we'd thought of and we thought about very carefully and some things came about quite accidentally and as a result of you know the learnings that we had or the stuff that we brought back from the UK so for instance that hot food issue it was something we hadn't really thought about but of course we weren't able to provide any kind of hot food apart from a hot drink and any snacks that we provided had to be wrapped up because we couldn't for instance cut a cake so there was no we're unable to share food in that space which is very different to what you would find in a cafe but we make it work by we pre-buy snacks, we put them on a tray, people get to choose which snack they would like so that it's not, you know, here's something, it's, you know, they still get a choice in that. And that was something that people struggled with as well. The customers certainly took a while to understand why they couldn't order Uber Eats, for instance, to come to the to come into the cafe. But what we explained was that, you know, we wanted to keep that ambience going but we also didn't want to shift that things like food can be a bit of a power imbalance, if you like, if some people can afford to have takeaway and other people can't. So what we did was encourage people to talk about the places that they get reasonably priced food. And as we came into the pandemic, takeaway, and so they all began to share things like lentil as anything, and the local St Paul's does breakfasts and lunches and the Caritas nuns do uh, a soup kitchen locally and there's St Mary's House of Welcome that does food. And so often what people would do was gather, have some, you know, have some contact and those that were needing to use those kind of services would go together so that they felt less isolated when they got there as well. So there were some there's some bonuses to those sorts of things. And what it actually led to was in our first evaluation, one of the very unexpected outcomes was the sense of social connectedness that people felt in coming to the cafe. And that came through really clearly. And that led us to beginning to have the conversation that we now have every day of the week since the pandemic. And that's about loneliness and the epidemic of loneliness that is out there and how that impacts on your day-to-day life and on your health and on your well-being. And those are the things that coming to the cafe actually helps people to work out for themselves and to put things in place. This is not a place where you come and you look at a poster on a wall or you speak to somebody and you go away with an action. It's something that you come and, and you find out by being with other people how you can make a difference in your own life and what can get you through to the next time you have contact with somebody or there's something for you to do. And once we realised how impactful that was for people, we were able to shift our conversations as well in the in the co-design, in the second evaluation, to be able to capture much more of that and to get the story, the richness, to try and dig deeper and understand what difference this makes to people. And when we started to hear things like someone who was able to go and volunteer somewhere where they hadn't been out of their house for six years, not out of their house, but 
had been, you know, not felt confident enough to go and put themselves out there in the workplace. They actually went off to volunteer with some support from the team in doing that application and talking through how they would get through their interview. And we've had a couple of people that have gone on to get peer worker positions as a result of gaining more confidence in interacting with people and feeling like they have something in their story of value for other people. So there are lots of things in the richness of those stories that comes out of using that process as an ongoing way of evaluating that helps to explain the non-clinical side of things, the non-value add, the non-dollar add. Yeah, so I can see how having those stories has been really valuable in terms of demonstrating the value add that's not presented in the form of data. But is there some other data that you do collect that you sort of use alongside those stories? Or how do you fulfil the obligations that we quite often have around, you know, does this work? (laughs) You share some stories and it really brings it home for people, but then they're like, but, well, you know, what about everybody else? And so how do you manage that? That's a very real challenge in a health setting. And the challenge for mental health, because it is not a black and white, let's count this, and that will give us an answer, exists in mental health as well. And some of the things that we did, uh, one of the lessons we learned from our business case was that we set up some outcomes that were really difficult for us to achieve, such as one of the outcomes that we set up was that we would be able to save the organisation and therefore the state government and therefore the taxpayer. One of the outcomes that we set up was that we could make some savings by diverting people from an emergency department because they weren't there for emergency care. But every time you walk into an emergency department, you have to register, which means that it costs money. And the uh, Australian Bureau of Statistics has an amount close to $700 uh, for a visit to the emergency department, and that's without any interventions. So we use that as a basic to see if we could measure how many people were coming to us instead of going to emergency department. The difficulty came up when people started to come to us, they no longer, and we would ask them, have you come here as an alternative to going to the emergency department? But after the first visit, people said no because they didn't want to go to the emergency department anymore and they didn't have to. So it actually skewed our data. (laughs) So we had to try and find another way to measure that, which was very difficult because emergency departments don't collect data (laughs) that helps mental health outcomes. They collect data for other things. We didn't want to not adhere to the agreements that we'd made with with our original design groups by introducing data collection into the cafe. So many, many months down the journey, down the journey after we'd found some, some background ways to collect that original data, we changed those outcomes that we wanted to look for. We kept that we wanted to be a value add to the organisation, but what we did was we would collect the information from our workers rather than from our customers. So we would ask the workers did anyone talk to you about needing emergency department if they hadn't have come here so that we could get the data in that way? 
And then we looked at once we'd gone to our customer evaluation, we were able to, you know, sit those things side by side because we were able to have those conversations with them during that process to talk about what that might be. So the stories actually did help us in getting some other data. And then we just had to sit down and work really hard with the experts in the service around what data do we collect now and what are we looking for and is there any way to connect what we're looking for with the data we already collect. And there wasn't a lot, but we were still able to use that Australian Bureau of Statistics basic amount to be able to look at if people come, if 30 people come in a weekend and it's $700 to visit an ED, then you know, it's not hard to do those figures to think that. So we had to end up making an assumption that anyone who came to the cafe would need to use something like an emergency department if they were in crisis and the cafe wasn't there to come to. So slightly inventive, if you like, but trying to stick to, because there was no point in us proving that the cafe had a benefit if then other people went forward with it and it didn't have a benefit. (laughs) Because at the end of the day, the people who would miss out is the general public and that's what we wanted to avoid. And we knew that this has a benefit regardless, so we had to try and make it work in the best way that we could to give the value add as well as that rich experience. So it does mean that you need to have the right people around you and you need to have people who will not only work with you. The co-design is really important. You've got to have people who know what they're doing with co-design because it looks easy. You know, when I watched people, because of my involvement in the cafe, I couldn't participate in the co-design, in leading the co-design. So I was just an observer for all of it. And it looks really easy. But that's because if you've got the right people, all of the hard work that they do in the background, which we did do, you know, we did all the setting up and the what are we looking for and what are we looking for in our observations and all of that hard work in the background was done. But when you actually get there, you think, oh, this is easy, I could do that. It's just asking questions. But it isn't because they've already done all that work about the power and differentials and the biases and all those other things, and they weave those, you know, a good co-designer weaves those into the process without it ever having to be a big deal, if you like. So they make it look easy, but it's really hard work and you need the right people and it's not something that you find in health and it's hard for us to move outside of health because it costs money to move outside of health and most of our dollars are already assigned. So we were lucky enough to have enough funding to be able to set that money aside to be able to invest in that. And we are lucky in mental health across Victoria at the moment to have had the Royal Commission that supports that co-design needs to occur for services to transform, which means that hopefully services are able to now create a budget for exactly that purpose. So we'll see lots of designers working with services in ways that has never happened before. And I find that really exciting because it will take the concept of what a safe haven, safe space is, hopefully inside to clinical services. And that will be amazing. And meanwhile, the cafes or the safe spaces themselves 
still exist and still help to support the idea that you can get something different from a health service than you're expecting. Well, what an amazing uh, opportunity to really transform those experiences. And that's been so interesting hearing that story. And there's just so many learnings that you've been able to take out of this process that you went through to create these safe haven cafes in a co-designed way. I'd love if you could just sort of summarize for everybody that's listening in, what are sort of the top three tips or lessons that you did learn that people should should take into uh, if they are looking to do something similar to what you did in their organization? Hmm. Number one tip is you need to have the right people around you. And that's not just around who runs the cafe, who looks after it, but you also need to have the right people supporting you in the organization, particularly in health. So you need that executive sponsorship that needs to filter down. And you do that by involving the right people in your committee. So a committee is important for this kind of help problem solve and support the organisation to carry the risk that they will see exists, as well as that co-design. You need those experts that can help guide you. Second tip I would think about would have to be about the driving factor. I think the thing people talk to me about it as being my passion project, and I remember when I went off to see the board of Safer Care Victoria to talk about the outcomes after we'd spent all their money, one of the ladies on the board said, it's almost like you're the princess in the castle and how's this going to survive without you driving it? And what it did was made me go away and think is, is this a person-centred process or is it this a process process? And to me, that's really important in health. You need process because the people change an awful lot. And so I really had to look at what are the processes. But again, I then drove those processes to exist. So you do need the people who are drivers. They're really important. But if you set it up in the right way, the drive can be shared. But you certainly need to hold the passion because there's a lot of the this won't work when it first comes through, particularly with co-design because it's new to people. And so they're automatically suspicious of it and don't understand the point. So you do need to hold the hope when lots of other people are just sitting in the negative space. So that drive is really important. And I don't have a crown, so I'm definitely not a princess, and I don't have a castle. And the third tip that I would give people would be around the evaluation. Really, really important to build evaluation into your initial business case. Make sure you have a solid business case. Get the expert advice about what does a business case look like. We were lucky to have the experts from Safer Care Victoria. We wouldn't have survived if we didn't have that solid business case. And in that business case, you build in the evaluation. So you start with the questions you want to answer and then you have to keep reviewing those questions as you move through. And that means you have to invest in time and money in how you evaluate the service and please keep that co-design process running all the way through the evaluation so that you're constantly looking at how do we do things and what are people that are coming to us getting from that process. Mm. So important. Yeah. They are 
Fantastic tips, Fran. And that was a really, really interesting story of the how you sort of pulled that project together. And I think that's what these processes are all about, isn't it? It's about not going in there thinking we've got all the answers. It's about involving these people with lived experience, involving these potential clients or clients of that and and always having that learning mindset. And I think that's what I really took out of your comments today is that you know you, you never drop that learning mindset and that's what's been critical in making this a, su- a success nationally how do we keep on learning even after we've launched something how do we keep iterating and making this thing even better and better for the people that were there to support so hey thanks so much for spending some time out of your busy day with us giving us that story i think uh, our listeners will really benefit from that um, even if they work in the health space or not i think there's a lot of parallels between trying to get this sort of stuff started in large organizations that people will be able to take some lessons out of so thank you so much it's been a pleasure and yeah we'll catch everybody else on the next episode thanks for joining us thanks Fran. thank you thanks for listening to another episode of the innovate for impact podcast Any links to what we spoke about today will be posted in the show notes. If you'd like to know more about social innovation, visit our website where we have a heap of tools to help you on your way. Visit impactoconsulting.com.au. Thanks for listening. Now go out there and make an impact.